Hi, I'm Emily Freeman. And I'm Natalie Jackson, and we are both directors of Totally Runnable and Sea Sporty Be Sporty. And welcome to our Sea Sporty Be Sporty Role Models podcast series. In this series, we are talking to some awesome and undisputed role models from the world of sport. Why? Because we are celebrating the launch of our Role Models poster series, posters of awesome role model girls doing the sports that they love, which are now winging their way to our first set of 2,000 schools across Yorkshire. We know that girls and boys in primary schools still don't see enough other girls being sporty. And if you can't see it, you can't be it. So we are doing our bit to fix that. My co-host today has already said hi. It's Emily Freeman, who is an inspiration in her own right, might I say. Former UK number one sprinter over 100 and 200 metres, as well as Team GB relay regular, now retired athlete and my co-founder at Totally Runnable and C Sporty B Sporty. Hi, Emily. Hi, Nat. Thanks for that introduction. <laughs> and our guest this week is nothing short of a squash legend. She spent 16 years on the professional tour, 11 years ranked in the top 10 squash players in the world, and was ultimately ranked number one in the world after becoming world champion in 2013. She won two British Open titles, three Commonwealth Games silver medals, making her Great Britain's most successful female squash player ever. She retired in May 2019 and has since become an MBE for her services to squash. It is the one and only Laura Massaro. Hi. Hi, thanks for that. That was great. It was great to listen to it all back. (laughs) (laughs) So we are starting today's episode with a game I would like to call 11 Things Everyone Should Know About Laura Massaro. Great. Basically, (laughs) no pressure. Um... This series is all about role models and everyone is different and that's great and we can all learn things from each other and so there are no wrong answers. I'm going to give you some quick fire questions. It's either or and we just want to know more about you. Are you ready? Yes, I am. I'm ready. Okay, here goes. Cake or pie? Cake. I've seen your lockdown efforts. You're a cake maestro. Sorry, cats or dogs? Dogs. Invisibility or super strength? Super strength. Warm weather or cold weather? Warm weather. Love Actually or Bend It Like Beckham? Love Actually. Hot chocolate or coffee? Coffee. Digital watch or analog watch? Digital. Box sets or movies? Movies. Tricky one. That's a tough one. Singing or dancing? Singing. Watching football or watching tennis? Tennis. And last one, cardio or weights? Ooh, that's also a tough one. Cardio. Interesting. As ever, I find myself accompanied by two world-class athletes from very different sports, and I often find myself intrigued. So my first question is kind of to both of you. If you had to compete in each other's sports, how would you get on? Laura, any good over 200 metres on a track? Useless. Absolutely (laughs) useless. Um, Always completely in awe of of all track athletes, to be quite honest, Um, mainly because... Yeah, because of how hard it is. And obviously any, I think most professional athletes in any sport will have probably done the odd track session. 
throughout their career and I'm no different and I normally spent um the whole day worrying about it and you know but got it done and it was just brutal we actually funny story we I, I our proposal when my husband proposed to me nearly didn't happen because I was in such a sulk because we'd done a track session that day. <laughs> it's like <laughs> marriage at risk. He said, oh, like I, he's got this big proposal for the evening, <laughs> the ring, the champagne, and I'm absolutely throwing my toys out the pram all day. And he's just going, keep calm, keep calm. Don't cause an <laughs> argument. Don't cause an argument. We're actually at Club La Santa. I don't know if you've ever been in um, a training resort. And he had this big meal plan like outside the resort that night. And we had our last sort of Saturday, one session Saturday track session to do. I got better as I got older, I'm not going to lie, but I used to absolutely hate it just because of how painful it is. So for you guys to do that on a daily basis, hats off. <laughs> and I know they say squash is hard, but oh gosh, it's just, yeah, legs. And Emily, squash is hard. So I How's your squash tried, game? Well, I've <laughs> tried to play really bad. So I've tried to play with my husband, um, maybe a hat, well, maybe about... 20 or 30 times we, we went down the local sports center and uh went and tried to play but and i i'm gonna show my ignorance about like the game of squash but we had is it the racquetball like the slower ball or the easier ball um just to give us time to actually be able to play and keep hitting it but i was absolutely like on my knees after about 10 minutes and and my the only way that i could even get close to my husband was like by my fitness um but even then, just, I couldn't get the power. I just, it was so, so hard, so hard. But really, really fun as well. Really fun. I had a, a really, sub come sorry. I was actually going to say that I think you did a, the right thing with the ball. So with squash, obviously, there's the double yellow dot, which is supposed to be for pros. But you get a lot of amateur players, um, you know, wanting to play with that ball. But the bouncier the ball, the longer the rallies are. And that's nice because it obviously the harder you hit it, the warmer the ball gets. So almost one of my top tips for kind of amateur players is try to match your level with the ball a bit a bit better. Are you making notes, Emily? Yep, I'm making notes because after lockdown, I would love to get back to just doing a variety of like exercise and sport. Um, and yeah, we've said we've kept saying we should go back and play squash. Right, match the level to the ball. What ball do I need then? Um, yeah, probably a single yellow dot. I'd say. Um, oh, it depends how good you are, but the level below that, I think, is probably like a red dot, which is uh, really bouncy. And and what's the heart? Basically, means when you talk about the power that you don't have to hit it as hard for it to bounce and go somewhere, and therefore you can get it back, and it's not just like going to hit the floor and be like a stone. So with the double yellow dot, you really have to get a lot of power and a lot of heat into the ball for it to bounce up, which obviously the pros do. So that's why the rallies go on. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd definitely say that. That's great that you've played. I'm, not a lot of people have actually given it a go. <laughs> so I love hard. that we have the world champion on the podcast and Emily's getting personal squash tips. tips. <laughs> Sorry, back to the podcast. I'll give you my number later. <laughs> Thank you, yes. <laughs> We'll not be playing against each other ever, obviously. But, um. <laughs> so, Laura, tell us about how old... We've said that it's it's not necessarily something that you get introduced to or not necessarily something that um, normal people maybe would play. How, how old were you when you first picked up a squash racket? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think like most squash players, as you said, because it's not kind of schools having a squash court, it's mainly because your parents played. Um, so, yeah, my parents both played and I was about seven years old. Um, 
Yeah. And my, my dad said when I first hit a ball, I volleyed it. So uh, without the bounce and he, he straight away thought, wow, that's quite good hand-eye coordination. And I guess he sort of, you know, I enjoyed it because I was quite good and having that connection on the ball is, is a bit kind of addictive. So as a kid, when you can start hitting the ball on your own and that's also the thing that I've loved about squash over the years is that, you know, you can, you can go down and play on a court solo practice. You need one ball. Um, it stays within the walls. It always comes back to you and you can practice on your own. Um, so it, yeah, I played because my parents played and then kind of just got, got better and better and was enjoying it. And then you get the bug, don't you? So your dad scouted you at your se- uh, seven years old on your first volley, basically. It's what <laughs> <laughs> like, this girl's going to go far. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he just he loves the sport himself and, you know, kind of was a little bit addicted. And as as I got older as well, and this is probably an interesting thing for the podcast, it was really hard for for me to find opponents. Um, Obviously, not loads of kids playing. My dad used to have the odd match set up with a guy at the club. So once I got to like 14 or 15, he'd just ring them like with half an hour to go and be like, I'm stuck in traffic. I can't get there, but I'm sending Laura. And I'd, I'd just turn up and they'd have no choice but to play me. <laughs> Sneaky. <laughs> Good work. So if there weren't, I mean, there, there wasn't a big setup then around you or there wasn't sort of a youth setup there? No, um, we had our local, it was actually at a leisure centre when I first started and we had sort of Saturday morning squash lessons and group lessons and then, um, just as I turned kind of pro or left high school, that sort of kind of at college, let's say, um, the local David Lloyd opened near me and they built three courts. And that's where I've been ever since. And they've got a, a really good setup. And the club itself has got, you know, really nice social scene as well. So rather than a leisure center, which can be hard going because not many people are around, it can be quite cold, the the upkeep of the courts isn't always what it should be at leisure centers. So it was actually really special to sort of feel like you were moving away to a private club, but in a strange sort of way also makes the, the sport a little bit less accessible again, because it's, you know, quite expensive to be a member of one of those clubs. So I had the best of both worlds, I think, where I was really brought up in that kind of, you know, leisure center environment where it was 50p in the vending machine waiting for my brother to finish his lesson. And I'd wait and, then go on for mine to to kind of having a really nice base um, to be pro. It would have been really hard to be pro and be based out of a leisure centre type club. So um, yeah, no, no, it's all done with kind of local coaches and into setups where there's group sessions and things like that. There isn't really, it's not a mainstream sport for us to go in and have a lot of the setups that a lot of other sports have. But I think when you start looking into it, I read that there's something like 4,200 squash courts in the country, which is actually, there must be squash courts close to me that I wouldn't know where to find. Yeah, um, quite often they're hidden around. um, (laughs) And even with, even at like your local David Lloyd club, quite often they're tucked away at the back. And that's always the downside with the squash courts um, because they've obviously put them in a place that, you know, you you need space for a squash court and, they're normally around the back somewhere. Um, so yeah, there will definitely be courts hidden away somewhere close to you that you don't know about. A lot of tennis court, tennis clubs have courts and gyms and things like that. And we're just doing our, well, I'm trying to do our best to just not lose courts at the moment, because obviously with the fitness industry, it's really easy to just take that space and turn it into a studio. So yeah, the more you can get kids kind of playing and, you know, coaching going on, the more that likely those courts are to stay. But obviously for you, it was, 
possible to have a, a, a youth squash situation for you. You know, you obviously played squash without having a great club set up around you, um, which is I, like that shows what's possible. Yeah. And I, I think I was I think I was lucky as well, because I was sort of coming out of high school into college right around the Manchester Commonwealth Games. And so the whole legacy of that Commonwealth Games has been massive for me. Um, and I've sort of said a few times that I've probably been one of the most well, one of the people who's benefited the most from lottery funding. You know, I, it came in when I was probably 15, 16 and it's kind of for squash kind of probably just dipping now where we're not having the success we were. I think every sport's getting cut a lot. And obviously I retired in 2019. So from that period, from when I was maybe coming through at 14, starting lottery funding, even though at that age, it meant, it just meant sort of free coaching and travel expenses. And then it start went into personal allowance money. Um, I've had that my whole career. So, and that was a lot of that was based on the legacy from the Commonwealth Games and our National Squash Centre is now in Manchester where that Commonwealth Games was held. So the English Institute of Sport and our National Squash Centre has been there since those Manchester Games. And I spent most most of my career training out of that centre until um, probably the last four or five years of my career where I just probably needed a change after all those years. Um, so I was lucky enough to although not have that set up from a really early age, as soon as those Commonwealth Games happened, I had EIS support and a national centre that was on my doorstep when you think I'm in Preston and a lot of people all over the country always had to come to Manchester. So I was really lucky. So who would you say were your role models in squash then growing up? Well, I yeah, the, the girls that I looked up to and we were so lucky that um, English squash has been so strong throughout the years and from a really early age because of this lottery funding and because of the National Centre, I was able to join in on some of those squads that had the likes of Cassie Jackman, who was a world champion in 99 um, and, you know, kind of several women who were all in the top 10 so you you just look you just looked up to them and you were on court with them and they were just you know normal people they weren't normal people because you were in awe a little bit but they were just normal people and behaving normally and that's where I think I was able to see that it was possible and I was able to go on court with them and see not only the level that it took to be where they were and feel it and be on court with them um but also kind of being able to just see that it was possible because they were normal people. And, and probably outside of the England setup, I think um, Sarah Fitzgerald, who was an Australian five times world champion. And I was really lucky that she retired and lived in Manchester um, because of um, her partner was living there at the time. And I went on with her weekly right at that time where I was sort of transitioning out of juniors into seniors and she wasn't compet- competing and so competitive like she used to be but still playing a really good level. And I mean, I don't, I, I, I can't put a value on those sort of experiences and how much I looked up to her and the little things she used to say to me in training or in a match that, that kind of helped me form the base of my game, I think. That sounds such an amazing experience to, uh, to have it all on your doorstep. And yeah, like you say, just everything kind of came together. Um, is that why you're kind of passionate have been a role model yourself or are you passionate 
about being a role model, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think I'm always keen to go to to realize how much I was given. And I was really, really lucky, not only from a funding perspective, but from an opportunity perspective that even while I was still playing in about 2018, I started trying to mentor a few juniors and go on our young England junior squads and few people were like why are you doing that you're still playing but I kind of knew deep down that it was maybe coming to an end soon um and I wanted to be able to do what I'd experienced on those squads and I wanted to get on court with some of our juniors and show them the level and a lot of our sport now is dominated by the Egyptians and they they're, they're playing an unbelievable level of squash and so I saw it towards the end of my career part of my job as being a role model was showing that you can be you know British or European and be at the very top of the game and really give these Egyptian women who are amazing um some real struggles on court and get stuck into them and be mentally strong and be physical and and I wanted to show that level when I was on court with our juniors I don't I didn't want them to just think because you're English or European that you that you you're going to just naturally come second place to the European uh, to the Egyptian girls who are amazing so that was sort of one of the angles that I thought about you know what I'd experienced but also proving that you can do it wherever you're from and you're doing so much to be visible I think you know you're what what you've done you've got a YouTube channel we hear you've got a book coming out sometime soon how important is it for you to be visible and be that role model it's important um, in a healthy way, I think. And I've, and not, I, I was going to say I've struggled with this. I wouldn't say struggle, but I, it's on my mind to do it in the right way and not do it for personal, um, what, what, what you'd call sort of like personal like relevance, I guess. Like I don't want to be someone who is looking to still be relevant. I've had my time. Um, I did everything I could within the sport I want to try and give back. Um, I want to tell my story in the form of a book, but I want to do it in a way that helps people rather than a, a way that helps me. So it's it's hard as an athlete. I'm sure, you know, kind of knowing, knowing, well, now I'm retired, I think, Emily, I don't know if you can sort of relate, but it's where you, when you're on the other side, it's a fine line, isn't it? Between kind of like, you've had all this adulation and attention as an athlete to you personally. And then, quite quickly overnight it can almost disappear which is totally 100% normal but weird as well for you the person where you go from playing on these big stages to almost maybe sitting in the crowd or you know I don't know so it's it's about trying to really get that balance for my own mindset I think where I'm I'm trying to help and I'm trying to give back but I'm not doing it in a in a kind of forceful desperate way I hope um so the book again was like trying to be put a book out there and I wanted to write a book because there's only ever been two male squash players three male squash players who have written books Jonah Barrington years and years ago James Wolfstrop and Nick Matthew all world number ones Nick Matthew world champion as well amazing players Jonah you know he, he is the face of squash from from like a legendary status um so I wanted to be a female being able to do that. I wanted to put my story in a book. And again, everything I've just said about leading from the front and being able to be that role model and show what it took to be the best. I want to try and help other girls be able to achieve that. So I hope other female squash players write a book as well, because it's like with all sports, it's not about the sport. It's about the journey and the, the athlete itself and what it took on that journey. So, yeah, I'm excited for that. 
I'm excited to read it. I love books about athletes and particularly female athletes. And what I like about your story and what I've I've read um, about is what's going to be in the book is that you have done so much in there to fight. Although you've had this amazing career, you've done so much in there to fight for equality. And there's this whole situation around parity of pay between men's and women's. So I read that in 2013, when you won the world championships, you were obviously the best player in the world, but you got less than half of Nick Matthews' prize pot for winning the men's world championship. How how do you think that your experience with that has pushed you forward maybe to work with more women and girls? Or how important do you think it is that we hear that story? It's, in, it's important because you, you know, you, you have to see your role models and the people who you look up to in your sport fighting for equality and for what you kind of feel like you deserve as a female. And of course, for me, the main, the main thing was winning that world championships. And if there was no money involved, there's no money involved. It doesn't matter. But what matters is that, that you're sort of on a level playing field with at least, at least the male counterpart of your sport, if not other sports. Yeah. So, um, I think I think it's I wish I wish and think maybe I could have probably done a little bit more while I was playing, but I I did set my stall out as a player as being quite private. Um, I was very feisty on court, had the nickname the Ice Queen, um, and so I I wanted to play in that style of play, and so what linked in well with that and it, it wasn't sort of a persona I was trying to put out that's who I was when I was playing but it's not who I am as a person and so when I was playing I wasn't very outgoing on my social media I kept myself to myself at tournaments I traveled with my husband and my coach as much as I could which is not massively the done thing in the squash tour because you know it's expensive and it's hard and people have jobs and whatnot but I I reinvested a lot of my money, my prize money and sponsorship money into traveling with a team so that I could get the most out of myself on court. And so what I guess I'm trying to say is I probably could have done a bit more while I was playing, but I also felt that would have affected my level of play um, to get too into that side of the sport. So it was a real fine line. And so now I'm on the other side trying to do a little bit of that. And I did, I did do as much as I could while I was playing. And that was part part sort of helping out with the merger between the men and the women's tour which was massively um you know it was a huge step for us as the women to join forces with the men um they had the, the squash tv platform they had big sponsorship deals our tour on the women's side was more done on kind of like a handshake kind of and an agreement so with the, with the joining forces which took a lot of a lot a lot of time to kind of get the women on board because they thought they were just going to get swallowed up by the men we're now looking at parity in all of our big events um and it's just it's just trying to get that middle and back end of the tours up to like equal level now but it's i mean it's we're used as an example in squash as how that can um actually be a really good thing for other sports it sounds like you actually did quite a lot while you were still playing and like you say it you don't want to take the emphasis off the playing because it takes so much energy and time but to so to be fighting that as well at the same time is yeah impressive thanks yeah yeah I mean you'll know it's hard you get very distracted by social media and and the comments and if you put yourself out there you're there to be shot down as well which I was also very aware of and I didn't want I I you know like all females I well, that's a that's a generalization a lot of females we we get we might not show it, but you get affected by people's comments and what people say. And so I was very careful to try not to put myself in a situation where I would, 
you know, get myself in a bit of a spin mentally and that would detract from my squash. So it's hard to try and find the balance, but doing, doing what you can at the time is all you can do, I guess, isn't it? So our role models posters, as you know, are our way of putting more female role models in front of girls and boys. And we're using this tagline, if you can't see it, you can't be it. With your coaching, you have said that you are focusing on trying to get more women and girls into squash. What would you want the girls you coach to see in you that they could then become? I think I, like, I, want, to, I want them to be able to see I guess what well I was playing for for one like you can see that it's it's achievable when you're not Egyptian or you're you know kind of in that UK environment particularly and now even from a coaching perspective um I want to see them the the passion and the the dedication to the sport and and now I'm not playing I'm trying to show that in my coaching and always being sort of consistent steady you know not being moody <laughs> I know it's easy to say but you know when you're in coaching when people have wins or losses or you're having your you personally are having a good day or a bad day try not to reflect that in your coaching I want to be someone who seemed to be consistent in my mood um like caring giving you know something someone who's not looking for you know try, for, for any sort of payback from the player just want to try and help them be the best player that they can be and I'm also a very, very technical coach, which I do think is is sort of a little bit of a lost art in squash. I do think the Egyptians are doing it more than people want to actually acknowledge. And so I think people just think and see the Egyptians as shot players and attacking and feisty. And I think that that's all true, but it's all underpinned by a massive, massive technical ability as well. Uh, not all of them, obviously, but it's a lot of the top players are so technically sound that I think that that's massively overlooked. And that was a massive part of my career. And I put that down to a lot of my success. And my coach was also so technical, David Pearson. So I want to actually bring that to my coaching. And I want to make that possible for young kids to have a level of technical expertise that I feel is perhaps lacking within the English system at the moment. Um, so, yeah, um, maybe that won't go down that well, but <laughs> who cares? That's what I believe. <laughs> So you have a book out soon. Tell us about the book. When is it out? What's it called? Yeah, so the book is pretty much done. It's kind of on ice, I guess, until um, hopefully we're out the other side of the pandemic and I can put, um, promote it as well as, hopefully as well as it deserves with the amount of work that it's been put in. But I'm really excited. It's hopefully going to maybe, if, if things go well, be out around May time, June, I guess, at the latest, hopefully. We'll probably just release by that point and yeah I'm excited because the publishers have managed to get it in an audiobook format which is brilliant and everyone who was part of my team and um, throughout my career has sort of got their own chapter um, and it was brilliant to be able to get their perspective and they came in and recorded their own chapter and as an audiobook bonus had a question and answer in there as you know when you obviously really release a a book a hard copy of a book it's you get the pictures and I love the pictures so I was like what can you get as part of an audiobook that where you're missing the pictures and that was what we tried to add in so I'm really excited we try um we've tried you know not to make it too squashy in a good way so the squash there but you know trying it's been really hard to try not to get that balance between obviously I'm a squash player and it's it's about squash of course it is 
but not to get too in the details of the actual squash and the matches and the points and things like that, that hopefully is a way that people can, you know, see, see it as a bit more of an athlete book and, and, and hopefully reach a little bit of a wider audience, but we'll see. Um, but I'm really excited and, you know, something to be proud of, isn't it? Definitely. I'm really excited to read it. Um, you have a YouTube channel. Where else can we follow your journey and see what you're up to? Yeah, the YouTube channel was a bit of a new a new baby and I need to keep on with updating that. Um, just started in lockdown to help people really. Um, but yeah, I'm on Instagram and um, Facebook. I think they're both Laura Massaro and I think Twitter is LJ Massaro. So yeah, I'm accessible everywhere. <laughs> accessible everywhere. That's what we need. That's what we need in role models, I think. And it's great that you're happy to, to be that now having retired. So Laura, thank you so much for joining us to talk all things role models today. Thank you, Emily, for being my fabulous co-host. Uh, you have been listening thank you. to... Thank you, Laura, for oh. the tips. Oh, the Sorry. tips. Just thank the you, Laura, for the important. tips as well. Yeah, definitely. Anytime. <laughs> Drop me a message when we get out of this uh, and we can Amazing. all get back on the squash court. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, you heard it here first. Squash lessons. <laughs> You have been listening to the Sea Sporty Bees Sporty podcast role model series celebrating the release of Totally Runnable's role models posters. Join Totally Runnable for more of the same. We are at Totally Runnable on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye. If you know a school who might like to know more about the gender sport gap and what they can do to measure and start to close it, they should be a part of Totally Runnable's Girls and Sport Pledge. It's completely free to be a part of and includes some brilliant resources to start your school's gender sport gap journey. Just go to our website at www.totallyrunnable.com or Google Totally Runnable Girls and Sport Pledge or email me nat at totallyrunnable.com.